Welcome to Grails, a podcast by Alton Insights. My name's John Tunger, and on this episode, we are talking all things wine. I'm joined by Billy Galenko from Vint. He is a sommelier or som, and so he knows his wine really, really well. And so if you're new to wine investing or don't really know the nitty gritty, he's going to give us a good framework of how we can think about different blue chips or more upside wines, um, some initial things that we should be looking for. But sit back, grab a bottle of red if you have one, and let's get started. Is it fall of 2016? I basically had watched the movie Psalm for like the 50th time. Um, <laughs> and for those who don't know, it's it's basically a movie about um, people who have passed the advanced sommelier exam studying for their masters. So I know it, it's fascinating. They're tasting wines, being able to call, you know, the varietal, where they're from, all that stuff. So I watched that again. I was just like, how did they start doing this? Like, do I need to work at a restaurant to be able to, you know, apply yeah. for this exam? And it turns out, no, you can just apply for the exam. Um, so they have four levels, intro, certified, advanced, and master. Um, so like right after that movie, I just signed up for the intro exam. Um, at that point, I knew maybe two wines by name. I knew a general Chardonnay, Cabernet. Uh, I didn't really know much. Um, so that was December-ish. And then I was taking the exam in March. So in the, me- in the middle of that time, I basically just started... I got the wine Bible. Um, it's, it's a great reference book. And basically just started consuming all as much wine content as I possibly could. And, um, and wine, you got consuming the wine content and you got to taste it yourself. Right. So you're just, you know, <laughs> wait, exactly. so is this like a textbook? Like what is the wine Bible? What do you, what, what is that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a reference book. Um, for some reason, the author is uh, slipping my mind right now, but it's just basically a great book of basically starting out through it. it it's, it's kind of like a narrative walking you through the different regions, different varietals, what is wine. So it's, it's really nice. At the beginning, it starts out, you know, kind of the one-on-one basics, winemaking varietals. And then it takes you through every region. And she always adds, um, like, where to eat or, like, types of foods to eat type place. So it's mm-hmm. kind of nice. It's it's a little nicer of a read rather than just, like, a pure textbook. I also have the, um, the Oxford Companion to Wine. And that's very much just, like, picture an encyclopedia for wine like no story no like actual okay. background yeah. so it's really interesting so it was a fun read um great resources to get if people have no idea anything about wine and they want to like dive in that's a good place to start yeah the Let's wine bible is where i start all my friends the oxford companions where i talk to my sommelier buddies about um so awesome awesome yeah so um started studying and the interesting part is i did start tasting i used it as an excuse to go to um Spain and, and taste some wines, um, which was which was great. But so the first exam, though, it turns out, not it turns out I knew this, but there's no tasting component. So you basically sit for two days with master psalms walking you through basically, again, like a whirlwind of every wine in the world. They, they walk you through tasting together, but it's not actually tested. So at the end, you take a 50 question test and you become an intro sommelier. Um, that was kind of like after seeing everybody blind taste and get these pins and all this other stuff, I was kind of like, I was a little bit of a letdown. So I was like, mm. all right, what's the next level? Um, and it turns out that's certified. So the certified exam has a blind tasting component. Um, when I took it, you blind tasted four wines. It has a theory component where you, again, 50 question test, and then a service component where you basically have to 
so you serve a master sommelier and, and five invisible people um, that are supposedly at the table. And then you have to perform sparkling service. You have to basically provide recommendations on pairings for all wines, spirits, anything that's liquid at the table. So wine, spirits, beer, coffee, tea. Huh. Um, and you have to be able to just basically come up with these all off the top of your head. So I thought that was really exciting. And I signed up to take that exam just five weeks later. Um, little did I know, most people in the service industry like have been working in the industry for years and then they study for like a year in advance ahead of this exam so it's one of those times where it's like what you didn't know kind of helps you I guess I, I was less intimidated than I, I should have been mm -hmm. um so I had a buddy in New York who owned a wine shop he helped me just basically taste and taste and taste for like five weeks um I ended up taking the exam I was living in New York at the time down in Virginia Beach um where I grew up which is funny because there's a book called Cork Dork, which is basically a lady's um, documenting her journey from intro sommelier to certified as an outsider. And she took mm -hmm. hers in Virginia Beach after living in New York. So we were very much parallel. Um, my mom actually read that book to understand what I was doing. So. <laughs> She's like, you're what? You're like, just read this. Yeah, no, she found it on her own. She's like, I totally get it now. So um, <laughs> yeah. So that was, it was um, intimidating, I guess. I went down, I took the exam with like 14 other people um, in, in between the different sessions of the exam. You know, everybody's talking about why they're doing it. Some people want raises, some people, you know, this is going to help them progress in their career. They asked me, I was working in digital advertising at the time. I was just like, this is, this is fun for me. Um, so at that moment and, you were, you were really just like, no, this is a really fun hobby. Maybe I want to do something in wine, but, but there's no like formal thing set up yet. Oh yeah. No, there, there was not even a, I want to do something in wine. This is like, wow. I, I'm just very interested in this. And now it's becoming like, I'm starting to catch the wine bug. Yeah. Um, so after that exam, only um, they, you know, the master song comes out and the, unlike the track I'm in now, they tell you if you pass right away and only two of us passed um, one lady who was clearly very good at her job and then me. Um, so that was, that was like an, a really exciting moment, but also like, a, Oh, what do I do now? Like I have this, um, you know, should I go into wine? Wow. Um, yeah. So I basically spent the next few months trying to figure out what I want to do. I went back to my, I mean, I'm still doing my normal job and then I couldn't stop thinking about wine. So by that August, I had passed in May. I decided I was going to leave my job and go make wine somewhere because I could taste all I wanted. I could read, but I couldn't actually get my hands dirty. So mm. I quit my job in New York that December and moved to Australia and just went to go work at a winery um, to go work a harvest as like a seller hand. So in the in the winery itself, you know, pulling um, lines, basically just getting dirty and seeing the nitty gritty of winemaking. So you're starting to learn that. Where in the process are you currently at now? After you went, and you actually like learned the wine. Are you like, I, I how many stages of the psalm? You sound like there was like the stage two or whatever. Where are you at right now? Yeah. So that's as. I'll keep this as concise as possible. That's kind of where we, we pivot. So for me, so the, the certified sommelier is awarded by the Court of Master Sommeliers. They're, that's a predominantly American um, organization. It is, there are master psalms around the world and advanced psalms. There's another organization called the WSET, Wine and Spirits Education Trust. Okay. Um, they were UK-based, and they have a parallel kind of track. One, so the end of one is master psalm. The end of the other one is master of wine. I call, um, so the quarter master sommeliers has a heavy focus, like I mentioned on service. Mm -hmm. Um, so that there's a, basically a big emphasis on being able to serve customers at a table, that side of things. 
um, being able to perform in person and verbally. Um, wow. So I call it more wine performance. Mm -hmm. So after I, I did my harvest in Australia and I've been working in wine more, I realized my focus was more on the wine kind of business side, which is what Wine and Spirits Education Trust focuses on more. I call it more like wine law school, actually. <laughs> um, it's The exams are much more written, um, yeah. but there's still a heavy tasting component. Um, but then on the same side, there's, you know, I've, there's a lot more business side of it. So I switched to that track um, a couple of years ago. And now I'm on the equivalent of what the advanced would be for the, the master SOM track. Um, mm -hmm. It's their diploma. It's the highest level in WSET. And then after that, I get to apply if I pass these to a master of wine program. Wow. So, I mean, it is really like a couple year long process to kind of become like the top of the top. Uh, where in this did the guys at Vint come along and you're like, oh man, I love this idea, investing in wine. How did that start taking shape from just like trying it and, you know, being just an expert in this, in these things? Yeah. Now I, I will say when you're, your note there of the, how long it takes, at least the, the quartermaster sommeliers, I could go from zero to intro to certified in four months. Uh, the WSET require you to mail all of your exams back to the UK. So these processes take like months and months just to pass one exam. Um, and it's like years for the diploma, like a year and a half, two years. So it's been excruciating to go this slow now. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, they came along. So this was last March. Um, I actually had written a, a freelance um, ebook on wine pairing on via this platform called Upwork. Um, I still had my profile there trying to do some wine writing on the side, um, in addition to working at the producer that I worked at. Um, and they reached out and asked me to do some wine writing. And they were just basically like, the person who's currently writing our stuff is bad. Would you be interested? Um, basically, it took 30 minutes for them to brief me on the uh, basically the, the company, like what I would be writing. And by the end of that brief, I was asking if I could invest in the company. Um, I, <laughs> So yeah, I had, I had basically been in the wine industry long enough and it heard, you know, I kind of, my background was in digital advertising, like kind of tech. And this was like the perfect combination of technology and wine and really pushing something forward that I had never seen before. So I was immediately interested in being a part of it. Did you invest in wine at all yourself before this? Yeah. Yeah. I had been, I'd been building a cellar for a few years. Um, and then I, I had actually made a few purchases specifically on the wine investment side and in, including you know i have i have a seller here i have well, a couple here in los angeles um but yeah i had been but not as seriously like i couldn't afford and that's one of the reasons this was really interesting to me is i couldn't afford some of the most investable wines in the world mm -hmm. and what vint was proposing to offer i knew people like me or just other people in general who liked wine would be really into the opportunity to be able to invest in say like you know a drc that they probably couldn't afford on their own Right. So when you're saying like you have a seller and stuff, right? So candidly, I'm more of a noob when it comes to wine investing. Is that something like you have 20 of your own wines in that cellar? Do you have way more than that? Um, are these things that you're like wanting to dip into to drink or are they more just, uh, you know, investments that you want to flip later on? H how do you treat the seller and investments that you have? Yeah, so a couple years ago, especially after coming back from Australia, I'd accrued uh, 100, 150, probably pushing closer to 200 bottles wow. of wine. Um, I tend to buy, not as much in cases, but in, in bits and pieces, um, so that 
doesn't always lend itself to the collecting side. Um, so it got to the point where I had like four wine fridges in my house. Um, and when my, my girlfriend moved in with us, she was just like, this is too much. And also at the same time, I was getting higher and higher qualities of wine and some of these fridges, you know, the temperature fluctuates and things change. So at that point, I got an external, basically picture storage unit for wine that's heavily insured security, um, has backup generators in place, power goes out. So that's where I would start keeping the majority of my my wines over a certain price point or that are meant to age for an extended period of time. And then I would keep, I'm down to one fridge now um, here in my apartment that's basically just for drinking on a regular basis. Um, and then I've since expanded in with our partners at um, Vinfolio, um, Adam LaPierre is on the board of Vint. I now store my most investable wines with them. Um, I have like my second tier here in Los Angeles. And then I have my like drinking wine here by my bed. For people who are are new to investing in wine, I feel like you're, you're talking about these bottles. You have a bunch of them. What is like, I mean, I kind of want to ask how much your personal wine collection is worth if you were just guesstimating. <laughs> um, but like when they're saying the difference between wine bottles that you would buy compared to wine bottles that like would be or collections that'd be offered on Vint. Uh, what is like the difference there, right? Because you obviously have a big collection of your own. So like what price range are you collecting and what is your portfolio worth? If you're okay to tell me that, okay, if you're not. And uh, and then like what kind of stuff are you going after with Vint that's outside of your price range? Like what's the difference there? Yeah, yeah. So I, I realized when, as you're asking that question, um, I have also invested in wines with other partners that we work with and um, Porto Index in, in London too. So I keep wines there. So that's where the the more expensive stuff. So in terms of my... It's it's hard to put a number on the the wines that I've accumulated over a long period of time. There's some from Australia and some from other places that are are rare, but they might not be as valuable. But I would say I can safely say my the seller between the UK stuff and Benfolio and some other purchases are well over twenty, thirty thousand dollars at this point. Wow. Um yeah, so I, I've been lucky in the, the crypto space. That's something I got into right when I got into around about wine. So I've been diversifying on my own. Um, so luckily, I have been able to afford some of the wines that are available at Vint. But like b- before that, um, you know, being able to diversify against a lot more. Like I understand the 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 issue now of you know if I want to buy three of these bottles, that's going to be you know say fifteen thousand dollars. Whereas instead, I could be diversified against around yeah. with the top producers throughout the world, yeah. um, those $15,000 could go a lot further. So that's where it's something like like Vint. And like, when, as soon as I heard about it, I was like, oh, this solves a lot of these these issues because yep. even if you can afford some, you can't afford to invest across the whole spectrum. Yep. So on your own, you're probably buying like the cheaper bottles that are like, sounds like maybe a sub $5,000 or something like that. And you kind of collect more of those. And then on Vint, that's where you're able to go for like the much larger ones. Does that sound kind of correct? Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I will say like my, I, I splurged on a couple like the, the gems and the crown jewels that I would, will stay in my collection for a while are like, uh, I have three 2015, um, DRC Latash, for example. Mm-hmm. And those are my babies. They stay in the UK and they will, they will be there. But like our vent collection, we had three DRC 2010s, you know, DRC Romani Conti from that actual vin, vin, uh, vineyard. And those wines are worth, you know, 20, 30, I can't remember exactly what the uh, the final rate uh, price point is, but you know they're worth multiple times more that, and that's something I could never really afford on my own at this point in my life. Right. So, yeah. right, right. Um, so for people who are newer to wine, um, I want to kind of start talking about like some of the the wine collection on Vint. Um, 
is it pretty easy for you as a SOM to be able to be like, those are really great values. Hey guys at Vint, we should start going after these wines over here. Um, is it pretty easy to spot value and kind of like this more like older, it kind of feels like an, you know, not archaic, but, uh, old school industry, right? So are you able to kind of like provide an edge to Vint to be able to go after things that are maybe ahead of the curve? Yeah, I, I think that that's kind of the uh, the double-edged sword of being a wine nerd and kind of um, a sommelier in the first place is we're always looking for the wines that are most interesting tends for like, if, if I'm looking from the quartermaster sommelier side, looking for our guests, you know, Sometimes they're trying to upsell, but other times they're trying to look for good values for their, you know, for their guests or their friends and family. So I tend to drink a lot of wines that are much more mm-hmm. kind of out there. So when I, I realized recently, um, and this this goes into so for Vint, what we consider emerging in the wine investment space is not at all emerging in like the, the macro, you know, wine yeah. zeitgeist in terms of the sommelier. So it is really helpful um, just knowing all the regions, knowing the top producers, being able to, to pull that out of your hat. Um, but something else about wine is it's always very humbling. So that's why we have our, our full network of advisors from around the world. Um, they're able to uh, kind of give us some insights from their years and years of experience because that's invaluable. But at the same time, you know, the wine market's changing um, and it's always interesting to kind of keep a finger on the pulse of what was traditional wine investment, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Bordeaux made up 60, 70% of all wines traded on the secondary market on LiveX. And now that's very low. Um, I think they're closer to 30 now. So it's interesting is it's kind of like a passing of knowledge from the old guard to the new guard. And then you right. touched on it too. The pricing um, is it, just basically, it's, it's so strange. Um, some sides, it's like, it's not clear. There's a lot of arbitrage opportunities. So right. basically trying to gauge the true value of a wine takes a a lot of extrapolating from different data sources. Um, Right. Where would be a good place to get started? Um, You know, if I'm just like popping up on Vint, I think there's some uh, offerings that are still open, right? Like to get started in a wine collection, if I'm looking for, for example, a safer blue chip thing, right? What are some wines that I should look at? And then do you have something on Vint that kind of like matches that as well? Not informal investment advice, but if we're looking into wine, you know, that's what we're we're trying to get to. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of blue chips, I, I would say we have more coming up in our next collections. Um, we don't have any open right now, but that would be like the, the DRC, the Burgundy collection we had. We had a Bordeaux Classics collection. So I would mm-hmm. say, while, while they are a smaller portion of the overall um, mix than they used to be, the, the Bordeaux, the Burgundy of the world, um, Bordeaux, both left and right bank, tend to be more those, those blue chip. Um, S&P kind of longer 500 term. wines. Yeah, historically, yes, they've been that way. And then, so what you guys have on Vint currently is that more a bit like if it's like higher upside type stuff. No, so yeah, so the current collections that are available um, that are open right now. So there's a Rhone collection uh, that basically pictures it features wines from the Northern Rhone, Hermitage, Cote Roti, and some in um, Chateauneuf de Pop. And then we have a Piemonte collection open that features basically the top producers in all Piemonte, mostly Barolos. We have one Barbaresco. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that these regions have are classic in terms of they've been producing wines for years and years. They've been um, historically well sought after, highly sought after. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Jefferson went to Hermitage and was blown away. He liked the whites a lot, but he also enjoyed the reds. Wow. Um, yeah, and then Piemonte has, has been around producing single varietal wines 
for well they've been producing wines for centuries but since the 1850s they really focused on nebbiolo so there's a really interesting kind of disconnect between collectors perception of value and some of these historical wines and both of these wines are now basically since the 60s have been on the kind of the same trajectory of con- consistently getting more and more attention and basically kind of love from collectors in general and now they're being appreciated more and more for their you know value over time or their historical kind of collectability mm-hmm. um it, it's just now the market's kind of catching up to the quality of wine that's been produced for for a long time and it was more of a an awareness thing rather than purely a you know quality of the wine or you know mm-hmm. overproduction or something interesting yeah and i'm just trying to put it to like an investment framework right if people are just looking at it so it sounds like it's not necessarily like the young startup kind of wine type thing that has like potential big catalyst, but it, it sounds from what you're saying, it could be a blue chip, you know, in the future if it gets more, more mass adoption. Is that, am I kind of reading that right? Yeah, exactly. Like it very much just like, like Burgundy, you know, if you went back 20, 30 years, you know, the prices weren't nearly what they are now, but there's minuscule production. They're grown in very small vineyards with really unique terroir. All of those sentiments basically goes for the Northern Rhone wines we have and mm. the Piemonte wines right now. There's there's very little of these things made because they're very hard to, to farm. The vineyards where they can be grown and still classified as they are are very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and the producers in each collection are top class. So I, I do think that over time, the, the respect will continue only to grow for both Rhone and Piemonte. And we've seen that in metrics, which you can find on our one sheeters on the site. Um, and and yeah, they may not be like the instantaneous, you know, you'll say the name and your friends are impressed, but maybe like four, five, six years from now, they'll, they'll be very impressed that you had invested in those back in the day. Not formal financial advice. Uh, always got a disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Well, I'm um, saying, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they won't be impressed by your returns. I'm saying that they might be impressed just by the, the fact that you know who these people are when <laughs> now they're on a, you know, yeah. featured in wine publications or something. Yeah. No, absolutely. But yeah, not wine publication advice. Yeah. Um, so then how can we be thinking of like some more emerging markets? I know like champagne's been getting a lot of attention um, more than it it was, right? Or things like that. What are some some more upside type things we can be looking at? Yeah, no, I think there's, there's a bunch of ways to be looking at it. Champagne, I would put that closer to the, the, the blue chip side. They're, mm-hmm. they're pretty well established and have had consistent performance over the years. Um, I think what you need to be looking at is we're, we're in this we're in an interesting time because one, one part there's a changing of the guard a little bit. This happens, you know, every, every 20 or 30 years where the, the winemakers of a certain generation are, you know, either retiring or they're moving on um, and the new generation's coming. So something, so that's, that's occurring right now. We're starting to see who these new superstar producers might be. Um, so that's going to be something to keep an eye on moving yeah. forward. I also, um, you know, with, with climate change and the way that things are kind of changing and new practices and sustainable farming, we're also seeing certain regions become more producing higher quality of wines than they once were able to. Um, other ones continuing to do the same, but that, that's something to also keep in mind is regional wines or typicity in terms of expressions of wines is going to be transitioning over the next 10, 20 years. We've already seen a little bit. Um, so what we're seeing, right now would be like what's considered a good vintage in Europe for the past 20, 30 years has been like a traditionally warm vintage where the grapes can get ripe enough because it's a cooler kind of climate overall, just on a macro scale. Now we're seeing more and more good vintages. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of how these scale um, as, as it's getting warmer and warmer. So maybe a good vintage in the future might be something that's cold. Um, 
and yeah, and I, I was, and I'm totally a noob here. So when you're saying colder or warmer, you're talking about the climate that they're all grown in. Is that what you mean? Um, explain that a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that also kind of brings me to like more emerging regions in general. Um, so something what's considered old world is traditionally somewhere in Europe. Um, so it's France, Italy, Germany, mm-hmm. Spain, new world would be United States, um, Argentina, something like that. So a hallmark kind of, of a California cab compared to a Bordeaux cab would be very ripe fruit, um, very fruit forward, higher alcohol. It's going to be like a, a juicier wine. Whereas Bordeaux, you know, one of the first um, tasting notes for left bank Bordeaux that people look for is like, or, you know, aromas are like pencil lead and these like secondary cigar box tobacco. Uh. So that's the product of the grapes ripening slower and not to a certain extent, um, not to the same extent over the course of the growing season. Um, so that's why they valued more some of these bigger riper years in Bordeaux compared to in California. They're always, you know, they've always been kind of that big. So now everybody's kind of looking for what is this balance? What are, what are we looking for? Do we ha- change our harvest times um, as both regions warm throughout the world? Wow. Yeah. So it really is shifting and the changing of the guard will happen just from naturally, like where those places are located. It literally is not producing the same stuff that it was decades ago because of, of the climate actually changing. I never even right. thought about that angle towards wine. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what's going to happen in the very near term is people can adjust harvesting times, you know, they can either harvest earlier, or they can adjust some practices to kind of offset this. Um, you're also seeing like biodynamic and sustainable farming is actually better for the soil. It's retaining more in the, when you have more moist soil, you have a little cooler temperatures. So that's helped. Mm. Um, but over time, yeah, there's only going to be so much you can do in the vineyards and people are just going to have to either plant different grapes or, you know, plant different vineyards in different areas. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even see that coming. I know we're almost uh, hitting our time. So I want to end it by talking about uh, if there's anything that's coming to vent, things that should be on our radar. Um, you guys have just been absolutely crushing it. And so what can us as investors kind of see coming down the pipe? Yeah. So we um, are just in the process now of finalizing our next batch of collections with the SEC. Oh. And we have some really exciting wines coming up or collections, I would say, as a whole. Um, I, I would say keep an eye out. I can't be too specific, but keep an eye out for some more more blue chip stuff. We're definitely looking more um, in France to some of these uh, areas that I kind of referenced earlier. I would say um, we also are going to be looking at, you know, experimenting with different uh, collection sizes. So, you know, you get, those of you who've known Vin for a long time, we started out smaller and kind of scaled to this, this larger size. Mm-hmm. Um, this next batch, you're going to see kind of a mix of sizes. So what that means is, you know, you'll have opportunities for a larger array of wines, but you also, you know, some collections will be smaller. So there might be a little less time to actually invest in these. Um, when they, they're below a certain point, they send us, tend to sell out within, you know, an hour or at least a day. Um, we also have some exciting whiskey ones coming up. I know um, oh, nice. everybody kind of loved the, uh, the Kurosawa 36 Views of Mount Fuji collection. We have something I would argue is just as interesting, if not more, um, another collection. So something we're looking to do more for our investors is put together either groups of wines or groups of whiskeys that aren't really attainable on the open market on their own. Um, and that together collectively add more value to each of the, the bottles um, in theory. So um, yeah, we're, we're looking together to put some other, some special parcels, whether it be, you know, uh, verticals of certain producers, great wines throughout a whole decade or um, a whole collection, just kind of like the Kurosawa one of um, certain whiskeys that you may have a hard time putting together by yourself. 